From WUFTFM, this is Animal Airwaves Live, our weekly hour-long show devoted to the discussion of the health and welfare of animals. Well, horses live longer now than they ever have before, thanks to improvements in healthcare and nutrition. But maybe because of these improvements in longevity, horses are much more likely to develop old age diseases, age-related diseases in their senior years, and one of the most common ones is called PPID. It used to be called equine Cushing's disease, but we're going to learn today about pituitary disease and the geriatric horse with my guest today from the UF College of Veterinary Medicine, Dr. Diane McFarlane. Animal Airways will come back after this news from NPR. From WUFTFM, this is Animal Airwaves Live, our weekly hour-long show devoted to the discussion of the health and welfare of animals. I'm Dana Hill, and I'm so happy you could tune in here on this Friday, April 8th, 2022. I'm live with you this afternoon, and I'm happy to welcome to the program today from the University of Florida College of Veterinary Medicine, Dr. Diane McFarland. And we're going to be talking today about pituitary disease in the geriatric horse Because, as I mentioned at the top of the hour, horses are living longer because of the wonderful treatment that they get. They are maybe more at risk for developing some age-related diseases than they formerly might have been. So let me welcome you to the program, Dr. McFarlane. I appreciate your being here today. Oh, thank you. It's great to be here. When we talk about horses living longer, is there a way to really sort of measure it and and know overall how much longer horses are living than they might have in the past? There are some fairly informal surveys that have been performed, and similar to our dogs, our cats, and people, horses are also living longer. And I don't have a very precise average age that they live to, but they live well into their 20s. And more and more, we see horses in their 30s. And I've even gone out to visit horses in their 40s. Wow, that is really impressive. Are there variations depending on the kind of life a horse might live or a particular, say, you know, breed of horse and so forth? So if you look in the Guinness World Book of Records, which perhaps is not super scientific, but a good place to start... The ponies tend to be the ones that live the longest. So the smaller stature animals live longer. And I believe the record is 54 or 56 as the lo- wow. the longest living pony. Um, there is a record from way back at the time that they had barge horses of a horse that was a draft horse. That's a very large horse that was supposedly lived to be 63. And that horse is... Um, teeth are actually in a museum in England. So, and I hope someday to go see those, but I have not yet seen it in person. Well, I'll tell you from my own experience, just anecdotally, I have recognized that people who care for horses develop very strong bonds with their with their animals, right? And uh, it's not hard to imagine why anybody who has like, spent time with a horse can, can understand that they're pretty remarkable animals. And if you have a horse and you, you take care of it and you can have these wonderful experiences, well, you'd want the best for your horse and you'd, you'd take as, as good a care of it as you can. Um, and yet, sadly, as we've discussed on this program before in regards to, say, cats and dogs, Well, the longer that these animals live, the more likely they are to succumb to some age-related diseases that 
maybe they, you know, uh, would not if <laughs> if they lived uh, shorter lives. It's it's kind of a trade off uh, with horses. At about what age is a horse considered older? So when they get into their late teens, maybe 18, you'll start to see some changes that are associated with aging. They may start to lose a little muscle, just like people do when they get older. They may get a little slower, a little bit less exercise um, tolerant. And so you can see those in late teens. But the horses that live very old may not start to show those signs until they're into their 20s. So typically, you'd think right around 20, they're, they're starting into their more geriatric years. With those horses that maybe don't show signs until a little bit later, is there anything that they have in common that might be something to which we can attribute their longevity and their overall good health uh, up through the onset of, say, their older years? So it's no different than we think of aging in people and in dogs, there's a genetic component to it. So the animals that are long-lived are more likely to have offspring that are long-lived. And there's an environmental component. And for horses, that environmental component does include some rather unique things. One of the things about horses that's unique is that their teeth continually grow through their entire lives. And so we have to take very good care of their teeth if they're going to be able to masticate their food well and get good nutrition. And then the other thing that can really contribute to the rate of aging change um, is the amount of parasites that they're exposed to, so endoparasites, parasites in their GI tract. Fortunately, um, today we have very good drugs, anthelmintics, that treat those parasites, and so that is something that we can probably attribute it. Some of the longer, um, the longevity that we're seeing now is probably to the care of teeth and care of parasites. Not to take too far a diversion here, but how about, say, you know, vaccination protocols and so forth, uh, you know, the kind of treatment that they, horses might get on an ongoing basis and annual checkups and so forth. I think those contribute as well. Um, although horses have great immune systems, we should continue to vaccinate them when they're older. They're still at risk. But whereas people have more problems as they age with viral diseases and being susceptible to diseases, horses are not quite as immune compromised when they get older. So it probably contributes, but honestly, it's some real basic health care of those teeth, the parasites, and nutrition where we've probably made the greatest impact on the length of time horses live. Yeah, and as far as nutrition goes, are horses eating different foods as they get older, or can they continue to eat basically the same thing for most of their adult lives? So typically, we will look to change their diet a little bit. Some of what we're changing is actually the structure or the material of their diet because their teeth, as they, I mentioned, they grow through their entire lives. They'll have less roots. So they can't get in and get to really hard oats and grind them up as they could when they were younger. So we will give them something that's been extruded or processed a bit more that makes it easier. Really old horses sometimes can't graze grass very well, and um, the horse owners out there who have old horses will recognize that they do what's called quitting, which is they'll chew the grass, and it wads up in a big ball, and then it, it falls out or they spit it out later. And so they'll get less nutrition from just grass as their teeth become um, less able to, to, to work that grass into something that is able to be swallowed. 
Yeah, okay. So today we're going to be talking about something called PPID. And it says here, and this is something I actually had heard of, is Cushing's disease was a former name. Uh, before we get into the details of the disease itself, uh, is there any particular reason that there's been a, a name change? So actually, yes. Um, P, uh, Cushing's disease in horses is not the same as Cushing's disease in people and dogs. That refers to a, a problem that's in the HPA axis, which is hypothalamus pituitary adrenal gland. So it's a cortisol problem. And in horses, the PPID actually stands for pituitary pars intermedia dysfunction. So that is the intermediate lobe of the pituitary, and that is not what drives cortisol. So it's actually a different pituitary disease. And so probably been 15 years now. We tried to move the the name away from Cushing so it wouldn't be confusing um, with the other syndromes and other species. Well, that's actually a really thoughtful thing to do. Uh, <laughs> the, the pituitary system, can you describe how it functions? Because this is going to be a part of our conversation today. Sure. So another name for the pituitary is the master gland. So the pituitary gland has um, releasing factors that are released secondary to what's going on in the brain. So the brain's surveying what's going on in the body. The hypothalamus will say, you know, there's a need for anti-inflammatory hormones. There's inflammation out in the body. The master gland or the pituitary gland will release a set of hormones that go out to target organs. And those target organs then will release hormones that will have the effect that needs to happen. So if inflammation is present in the body and the hypothalamus recognizes inflammation, then the pituitary gland can release um, a set of hormones. It could be ACTH, which makes cortisol be released from adrenal glands, or in the horse, it can release another set of hormones from the pars intermedia, including alpha MSH, which we can talk about in a bit, but that will then respond to inflammation. So it is basically a control center for what's happening in the the body at large, and it controls um, basic homeostasis. So it controls temperature and um, uh, stress. It controls reproduction and... um, Growth and so some very very basic body functions. Yeah, this is this is fascinating because I tend to think of the vital organs as being, say, the heart and the kidneys. And oh the lungs no and no so no forth. no! It's it's the pituitary gland. That, that's right. <laughs> I mean, that's what it sounds like you're saying is that all the functions that this performs are indispensable indispensable to the to the the life of this animal. It, it allows adaptability. So. If you think about it, the two communication systems of the body are the nervous system, and I'm sure you've talked about a lot of neurologic diseases and other episodes. So the nervous system is one, and then the hormone system is the second. And what they do is they keep everything coordinated through the body, so homeostasis, keeping everything right in that nice line of where it should be for the body temperature and the metabolism rate and all of those good things that we we need to keep in a normal normal functional vital range. Well, so does this pituitary system function differently over the course of an animal's life, or should it function the same? So the second part's almost philosophical. (laughs) Um, One would actually probably prefer that it does, but over time there are aging changes that occur to the, um, the hormone system, and certain hormones get 
they decrease over time. So growth hormones, one that decreases over time. And um, you can see some changes associated with that. And I've already mentioned that um, loss of muscle is something you can see with aging. And that goes because of that access being less functional. Other um, areas may become hyperfunctional. And so stress um, is one. You can have more stress hormones, um, which can lead to some changes as far as even how we control glucose and our um, metabolism as well as stress itself. So yes, there's upregulation and downregulation, loss of regulation in general that occurs with age. Which seems to be uh, something that could present itself to somebody who's observing, right? And that might be muscle loss, which would be pretty visible. Uh, as this horse gets older and maybe is experiencing some of these issues, what might someone who cares for this horse notice? Specifically with the pituitary parts intermediate? I mean, it, because it's doing so much, right? I mean, the, the, what I've noticed on in the course of doing this program is that something might happen that could have potentially several different causes. Um, and like what kind of things might a horse owner notice that one could probably closely attribute to a problem with the pituitary system? So the most common we're going to common um, abnormality we'll see in our horses in the pituitary gland is overactivity, hyperactivity of the pars intermedia lobe. And so that's PPID. And for the very astute horse owner, what they'll probably notice first is that that horse starts to lose muscle faster than other aged horses. The next thing they might notice is that the horse does not shed completely. They'll either retain some little guard hairs, so little hairs along their legs. They may shed later. So if the rest of the herd has already got a nice, beautiful coat in March, that horse may be later in April. As time progresses, they may have little patches that never shed. Um, and eventually what happens is they don't shed at all. And so you may have driven down the road and seen a horse that you immediately knew was old because it kind of had a sway back and lost some muscle. And it was a very hairy, long, kind of curly coat. And that is the end stage of loss of function, um, or sorry, loss of regulation of the pars intermedia. And it's actually increased expression of the hormones from the pars intermedia that cause those changes. Some other things that might be noticed is that Often these horses become more docile and a little bit more um, mellow, I guess is the best word for it. We can also see that they may urinate more frequently. They may drink more water. They may become immunosuppressed and have a tendency to get bacterial infections. Um, those are some of the really big signs that the older horse is developing PPID. Well, that gives us a lot to talk about <laughs> as we go into our first break here on Animal Airwaves Live. I want to say that I'm Dana Hill. My guest today from the University of Florida College of Veterinary Medicine is Dr. Diane McFarlane, and we're talking about the pituitary disease in the geriatric horse. We'll be back with more after this. Mm-hmm. 
Welcome back to Animal Airwaves Live. I'm Dana Hill. My guest today from the University of Florida College of Veterinary Medicine is Dr. Diane McFarland, and we're talking about pituitary disease in the geriatric horse. And when we left off, Dr. McFarland, you'd been describing kind of some of the signs that might be present if a horse is experiencing uh, signs of pituitary disease as, as it gets older. Um, you know, what, what's the earliest that you've ever seen some of these signs and symptoms in a horse? So that's actually a big can of worms. <laughs> um, it's, I personally have seen it in a horse that was 11 years old. Um, there have been cases reported earlier, but I would say 10 or 15 years ago, the tests that we had for PPID were a little less specific. So there could have been some horses falsely identified as being positive. So my horses that I have seen um, with my own eyes and test it myself, I'd have to say 11 to 12 was the earliest. And, and the average? Usually about 18 years of 18. age is when you'll start seeing it. You can, if you're going to start testing and really looking for it, I suggest around 15 because 18 would be about the mean that you'd start to see it. So on those horses that start a little early, it might be late teens. Is there a particular age at which you're almost certainly going to find it in a horse? Yes, it is one of those things that the by the decade of age of the horse, the incidence of disease increases. So when you get into the 30s with horses, it is difficult to find one that doesn't have PPID. It is quite common. The estimate is something thing in the range of 25% of horses over 20 years of age are going to develop dysfunction of their pars intermedia. So super common in the old horse. And the older they are, the harder it is to find one that doesn't have dysfunction of their pars intermedia. Yeah. So you mentioned some of the testing that can be done. And what would prompt a veterinarian to be asked to do a test? Would it be a horse owner or trainer noticing something that maybe gives them a little bit of pause and decides, oh, I probably should seek the help of a veterinarian to kind of determine whether or not there is something amiss? Yes, and testing has gotten um, quite common because of the idea that if we can identify the disease early, we can treat the disease and slow it down. We don't have a cure, but we can slow down the progression. Um, the other thing is that because exercise intolerance or poor performance can be linked to this. More and more people are testing early. I will warn owners that when you get a very young horse and you test it, the odds that your test can be falsely positive are greater than the ability of the test to recognize disease. And so um, testing a very young horse is really not recommended because you can't interpret the test adequately. Yeah, I mean, that's, that in and of itself is, is a little bit alarming because probably many people have been unduly frightened by the results of this test in their horse when maybe the horse had another reason for being a little bit tired. Absolutely. And what we test is we test... Um, most commonly hormone concentrations, and we test a hormone called um, ACTH. And ACTH is um, released both from the pars intermedia and the pars distalis, which is the another lobe of the pituitary that 
That's the one involved in cortisol. It, it sends ACTH goes to the adrenal glands and that releases cortisol. So it's not a specific test, is my point. And so ACTH, because it's a stress hormone, can go up for a lot of reasons, and it should. If your animal has some sort of subclinical disease, it couldn't be up. If they have some sort of a stress that's ongoing, ACTH can be up. Um, some horses naturally have a higher baseline of ACTH than other horses. Horses that have obesity and metabolic dysfunction can have higher ACTHs in the fall. So you can see I'm making a big long list of false positives. So if you pick a horse that doesn't have specific clinical signs, isn't older, and you test them and you get a high ACTH, it's more likely to be one of those other reasons than it is to be diagnostic for parsing your media dysfunction. Now, presumably the veterinarian who is looking at this horse will be aware that there's a high incidence of false positives and will kind of explain to the trainer right. or owner that there is not necessarily any reason to worry excessively. Right. So when when we talk about testing for PPID, the first thing we suggest is that there be the evidence of clinical signs. And in the horse with clinical signs, then if you test and get a positive, then we would recommend going ahead and, and doing treatment and making um, preventative management changes. There's, uh, I'm trying to think about uh, how to best arrange our conversation here, and I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but while I'm thinking about it, if at this early stage you have confirmed somehow that there is pituitary disease, are there options to treat it in a way that might mitigate the long-term effects of pituitary disease? So we're fortunate. There is a very specific treatment. And um, again, trying not to jump too far ahead, but we understand um, a good bit about the pathology and what causes this disease. And this is actually caused by a loss of dopaminergic in, um, innervation. So the dopamine neuron um, that comes from the hypothalamus that goes to the pituitary actually inhibits the the release of hormones from the pars intermedia. And so this is a dopaminergic neurodegenerative disease. And so knowing that, if we identify horses with this condition, we can give them a drug that mimics dopamine. And so we give them a drug called pergolide. It's a daily treatment. And by replacing that dopamine that is missing, we can regulate the pars intermedia, and then we can um, help control the development of those clinical signs. And so it it pushes the disease um, trajectory so that they, um, they're not cured, but they are, the disease is slowed down quite a bit. But a daily, a daily uh, administration of this medication. or For life. Yeah, for life. I mean, that's a big commitment. It is. It is definitely a big commitment, but it's been my experience that most people with the older horse, as you alluded to in the beginning, have had a very long relationship with those horses. And... Um, I've gotten a little older now, but when I started talking about this disease, I always made the bit of a joke that I was in my middle age, and most of my friends who had horses had had those horses longer than their husbands because mm -hmm. the old horses being in their 20s, um, there's a long relationship and a really great bond to the horses. So many, many horse owners um, will pursue medical treatment of this condition. Now, for horses that are getting into the years at which you would probably not be 
finding false positives when you go to test. Uh, and the clinical signs might be more apparent and, and might, you know, work to confirm even more uh, that this is the appropriate diagnosis. With those kind of diagnoses, is it very easy to get a, and I, I don't mean to say easy in terms of like it's, <laughs> what I mean to say is, can you confirm uh, with great certainty that it is a pituitary disease? Yes, if you've got the right age animal and some clinical signs, even if they're early clinical signs, and you have um, and you do one of the available diagnostic tests like measuring ACTH, or we also have some dynamic tests where we can give them a hormone and measure the response. If you have those, you can feel pretty comfortable that you have made the diagnosis. And late in the disease, as I said, you can drive down the road, look in a pasture, and say that horse has PPID because it's a very unique hair coat that they develop. So you can certainly make the diagnosis with good certainty. Uh, can we talk about the, the hair coat for a, a few minutes here? Because uh, this is uh, an area of, of equine health about which I am totally ignorant. And the list of the areas in which I am quite ignorant of equine health is long. But this one is fascinating to me right now. Uh, how does the hair coat on a, on a horse work? Uh, it, you say it sort of naturally sheds if all things are normal? Yes. So um, in the winter and in Florida, it's not the best example, but I lived in Canada for a while. And certainly you get some pretty magnificent winter hair coats and they should be shedding those out. Um, and it should pretty much shed in its entirety by the time spring's around. And these horses that have PPID will be patchy shedders or incomplete shedders, and eventually they don't shed at all. They retain all the hairs, and the hairs grow longer, and they get kind of curly. So these, uh, this coat uh, for a horse that is shedding properly, uh, will you see the bare skin of this horse as it sheds? No. It just it just new hairs are yeah, growing yeah. in and just so they're exchanging the, the hairs. I got yes. you. Okay. I got you. I'm 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 realized that's a very naive question. I just have not uh, been around Thought horses. Thought about it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I live in Florida and I have, uh, you know, like you say that there's, you know, we don't we don't quite have the cool, 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 cold winters that uh, some places up up north might have. And then my limited experience around horses too means that I I haven't had the opportunity uh, to see this in action. The that is such a, a very specific kind of area uh, uh, to see uh, this change. But you, you explained the reason why this happens. And uh, is that something that was always recognized as a sign of this disease? So, yes. If you look back in the really, really old literature, it was um, the, the sign that was it's really not seen in any other disease. So that correlation between the change in the pituitary and the change in the hair coat has been long known. And it's important for horse owners, especially in Florida, because it means that now you have to body clip that horse. You can't allow them to walk around with that long hair coat um, and not have heat stress, especially in the summer. And so it's a, it's a big management problem. They are also, because of the hormones that are being released from the pituitary, these horses are immunosuppressed, and they can get bacterial diseases. And if you have a horse that's in hot weather with a big, long hair coat, you can imagine they get a lot of sweat under there and can start to get skin diseases, and they can get bacteria. We call it rain rot. It's dermatophilus. It's a bacterial disease. So there's some management issues with that kind of hair coat as well. Uh, have you ever heard of this happening in conjunction with 
Anhydrosis, is that the condition in which horses cannot sweat? So interestingly, horses that have this disease are said to hypersweat, so hyperhidrosis. But if you live in Florida, and I just moved to Florida from Oklahoma, which was also very hot in the, in the summer, horses will first be anhydrotic and they'll oversweat. And then over time, they'll develop anhydrosis. So an an inability to correctly sweat is part of PPID. And if you have an older horse that's lived in Florida all its life, and all of a sudden you start to notice it's having difficulty regulating its sweat, either excessively or having anhydrosis, I would definitely test that horse for PPID. The test that you've described, is it a, is it a blood test? So we have two tests that we most commonly recommend. One is a blood test, just pull a blood sample and measure hormones. So that's used most commonly because of its convenience. But if that's equivocal and you're not sure, there's another test called the TRH-STIM. And TRH is a hypothalamic factor that causes release of the pars intermedia hormones. So a horse that we give TRH to that has a huge response and release of hormones is a horse that has hyper activity of the pars intermedia or PPID. These tests, are they, uh, you know, a veterinarian can probably take the sample or, or, or you know, and that makes a lot of sense. Does some sort of uh, technician or pathologist or something look at these uh, samples to identify whether or not the horse has this disease? So we've established normal ranges. So these are just going to be um, done by your, your veterinarian, and they'll send them off to a diagnostic lab that can measure them just like we would if we were measuring liver enzymes or, or other blood work that you'd have done. And when you come back with the result, are horse owners and trainers sometimes surprised, or does it usually confirm what they've suspected? I think mostly it's it confirms what they're expecting, especially in that older horse. Um, like I mentioned, 25 to 30 percent of older horses are going to develop this. Some people will routinely run this test. They'll, they'll measure ACTH from maybe 15 on, and so they more or less establish a normal on that horse. And so if at 18, that number starts to creep up, they'll actually have a baseline in that individual animal that says, um, this is what it should be. And then the change is indicating that they're starting to develop PPID. Forgive me if I, I missed this already, but about how long have these tests been available to veterinarians for these horses for which some sort of pituitary disease is suspected? So ACTH has been available for a, quite a while, and it's been recommended for testing for this probably around 2000, maybe a little bit before that, so quite a long time. The dynamic test, the TRH-STIM, has probably been about 10 years that we've been doing that test. Okay. I mean, so that's um, this program has been on for, for longer than that, so this is an amazing... It, it always fascinates me, uh, Dr. McFarland, that you know I'll, t I'll talk to you know, your colleagues in veterinary medicine and at the UF College of Veterinary Medicine, and I'll frequently ask them, what do you see sort of on the horizon in, in terms of, you know, diagnostic testing or treatments and so forth? Uh, and in the course of doing this program, it, it is remarkable how many new technologies are available in treatments and, and tests and so forth. Uh, so this is great. I mean, before that, you had a, a test available, but uh, with the newer test, uh, does that provide information 
and specificity that wasn't available before. Yes, and even before ACTH, we had another dynamic test called the dex- dexamethasone suppression test. And the problem with that was the horses really had to be pretty far along in disease before it, it would test positive. And so you already had a very strong suspicion your horse had PPID. They had the hair coat changes. So it made the testing not very valuable. Um, the newer tests are more sensitive and more specific, so they're better at identifying both positive and negative horses. And so um, we have made progress. There's a lot of room to advance our testing abilities um, to try to be able to better rule out those false positives and false negatives. And so that is an area of research that we're working on, trying to come up with new and better tests for this. Yeah, I mean, what are some of the limiting factors that are kind of holding you back right now? Well, always money. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Um, that's one thing. And then the second thing is when you when you look for a new test, you always want a gold standard. And so you need a test that you really believe will tell you a positive and a negative accurately to compare your new test to. And unfortunately, our current tests are only about 80% accurate. And so the only way that we have is to look at the pituitary itself. So when the horses pass, we can look at their pituitaries that we get at postmortem or necropsy and have a pretty good idea of if they had disease or not. And so that's a slow process and involves um, a lot of resources to have people bring us their horses um, as they pass um, so we can try to do that. Does the pituitary gland of an affected horse look materially different from a healthy animal? Great question. And yes, it does. You can actually, if you're used to looking at pituitaries, you can eyeball it and know whether or not it's normal or abnormal. It will become grossly enlarged. The average horse's pituitary is about 2.5 grams, and our record was 10 grams, so five times the normal size. And um, most of them will be up maybe four to five grams, but they can get markedly enlarged. Okay, two two grams is is not very heavy at all. I mean, that's just like a few paper clips maybe in your hand in terms of weight, right? A, a gram? Uh, am I am I right? I mean, how heavy is a gram? Um. Oh gosh. Yeah, <laughs> a, a walnut size maybe. Uh, okay, so it's, to put it into the yeah, food realm, yeah, right. That that sure. And so it's it's. Uh, but then if it gets that much bigger, I mean, then it, you're talking about it becomes the size of like a lemon or something. Maybe a lime or a ping pong ball. Okay. Maybe. All right. So yeah. so notice noticeably uh, noticeably bigger. And what does that? What effects does that have to the surrounding tissue? I mean, is that displacing other vital organs? Great question. And so um, I alluded to the fact that there's multiple lobes in the pituitary, and it has all this plethora of jobs. And so as the intermediate lobe grows, it compresses the other lobes. And I think that's an incredibly interesting question. We haven't explored enough. Is what is the concentration of all the other hormones from the master gland? And if we replace those, would it help some of these clinical signs? We actually haven't done that yet. We do know that you can see compression on the optic nerve, which lies above the pituitary. Um, And in really bad cases, you can even see a little bit of damage to the overlying hypothalamus. So yes, they can get very large and compressed. The pituitary lives in a bony shell. So the only way it has to grow is within that shell and then up into the brain um, in the horse. Yikes. Okay. So is this something that could be seen with any sort of diagnostic imaging? 
Yes, another great question. Um, we have done a couple of studies looking at using either CT or MR to um, image it. You can't see it with a radiograph because it's deep into the skull, and so you can't see it with more conventional imaging. But um, contrast-enhanced CT or and MR, you can see the pituitary and you can actually see the lobes. And we did a study where we took those images and we had the actual pituitary in hand and we sent it to, um, it, it, I was one of the readers, not this was out of um, Michigan State, but they sent the um, images and we scored them as we would score the actual gland. And there was a nice correlation between the two. So it is a way to make the diagnosis, but is it the right way? That involves general anesthesia and probably about three to $5,000. Sure. I mean, uh, anybody who has ever seen how a horse gets diagnostic imaging, it is a, a big process. It involves a lot of, a lot of people uh, and, pro, you know, protective equipment. Uh, and so that's probably not the best way. And and in any event, I mean, what would what really would the advantage be when it sounds to me like often these tests are really just confirming what is suspected already because some of what uh, so much of what this disease does is is appears to be visible. True, but the Holy Grail is a diagnostic test that can get them before their hair coat changes and before their muscle mass. Um, waste. As a person who studies geriatric horses, my goal isn't just to make the cute little hairy horse live longer, but to actually keep the horse performing and fit and in good shape as long as possible before they start to show aging changes. So if we could find diagnostic tests that say the pituitary is just starting to become dysregulated and intercept then, we could definitely make a, a huge improvement. And I think we've certainly taken the needle back. We are recognizing this much earlier, um, but we still haven't gotten quite there to predict which horses are going to develop this disease. Yeah. Oh, oh God. Oh, this is, this is fascinating. I want us to take one more break, and there's a lot more to discuss. I want to remind listeners that this is Animal Airwaves Live here on WUFTFM. I'm Dane Hill. My guest today is Dr. Diane McFarland from the University of Florida College of Veterinary Medicine, and we're talking about pituitary disease in the geriatric horse. We'll be back with more right after this. Welcome back to Animal Airwaves Live. I'm Dana Hill. My guest today from the University of Florida College of Veterinary Medicine is Dr. Diane McFarland, and we're talking about pituitary disease in the geriatric horse. When we left off, Dr. McFarland, you had been mentioning, you know, some of the benefits of identifying this early. The idea that one could prevent some of the muscle loss seems like a real important goal, because is it the case that once the horse loses some of its muscle mass because of PPID, that it's not likely to regain it? Actually, no. We can um, see an improvement in the muscle mass in horses that get treated. And so we can get some resolution of uh, the sarcopenia, but maybe not back to full performance and maybe not back to full muscle um, mass. Yeah. Okay. So that, well, that's, that is good news. I mean, the, the treatments, uh, and the, the diagnostic testing, is that expensive? 
No, not particularly for the the diagnostic tests, but the treatment, again, it's an everyday treatment for life. And um, I haven't checked lately, so my numbers could be a little bit out of date, but it was somewhere between 3 and $4 a day, which doesn't seem outrageous, but it is, again, if you make a diagnosis at 18 and your horse lives to 38, that's a, a pretty good investment. It's a consideration, but uh, probably, you know, uh, <laughs> you know, you're... With horses, ever I think anybody who uh, gets involved in horses probably understands that there's some some expense involved, uh, and so for the for what you get, which is more time with your horse and a healthy horse, that's probably a small price to pay. Uh, the The muscle wasting itself uh, is it, you know, if left untreated, would it be so extreme that the horse would lose some of its ability to, say, be ambulatory and so forth? Typically not. The muscle wasting that we see is along the top line primarily and then over the gluteal muscle, so um, over the rump of the horse. And you might see that they become weaker um, and they may have some difficulty ambulating, but it is not to the severity where they have trouble getting up and down or coming up to eat. it can be quite noticeable. And if your goal is to keep your horse in performance and competing or being able to ride them, it could have an impact on that level of performance. Certainly. I mean, you know, at the real, you know, extreme levels of of horse performance, almost probably any degree of muscle loss would be a significant factor. Uh, Is it possible that because this is, you know, part of the metabolic system and that has an effect uh, on a whole lot of different things, uh, that the horses might experience, you know, an increase in, uh, while losing muscle, an increase in fat? So they don't they typically lose weight and not, and they're they're catabolic, not anabolic, when they have this disease. But I hesitated a little when I answered because there is another disease, and I don't know if you've discussed it on your show or not. But another disease called equine metabolic syndrome or EMS, which is very similar to metabolic syndrome in people. It is insulin dysregulation associated most commonly with obesity, and horses get that disease very commonly. And there is some relationship where it appears, although we haven't shown this with epidemiology yet, that horses that are obese and have metabolic syndrome tend to develop PPID more commonly. This is something we would love to actually prove with hard data. Right now, it's just an observation that we seem to see these two diseases not uncommonly in the same horses. But when they have EMS, they're anabolic. They're putting on fat. When they develop PPID, they start using those fat stores and become catabolic. So, again, the master gland is the key player in metabolism, whether you're hungry and want to eat, whether you feel full, whether you put on weight, how fast you burn calories. And so this disease is part of that intersection. With this uh, disease, the onset, is it fairly rapid? That is to say, once a horse is confirmed to have this, if left untreated, is the is there significant degradation quickly? So it is considered a slow, slowly progressive disease, which is part of why it's so hard to diagnosis to make a diagnosis early. And it takes 
years before they will typically get to the end stage where they've got that long curly hair coat and a lot of muscle atrophy. Now, I have seen some of the earlier cases progress quite fast. And so I alluded to the fact, well, actually, I mentioned it, I didn't allude to it, that this is a dopaminergic neurodegenerative disease. And there's probably multiple reasons for those dopamine neurons to degenerate. And so some of them may have strong genetic components, and if they do, they may happen faster. And some of them may have more environmental components to it, and that may be a um, disease progression that's a little slower over time. And so the other dopaminergic neurodegeneration, um, degenerative disease that we know is Parkinson's disease in people. And the same thing occurs. You can have a strong genetic component, be monogenetic, have a single gene mutation that causes you to develop Parkinson's, that's usually rapid onset and early onset. Or you can have a um, genetic predisposition and some environmental effects, and that usually develops slower over time and later in life. If treatment is given early and continued, these horses can live relatively normal lives? Yes, and even when they have disease and you don't get complete resolution of signs, if you are controlling the immunosuppression and you're clipping the hair coat and you're taking care of their management quite well, they can still have very comfortable lives. If you, want, if you give them the drug treatment, you're going to get the maximal effect that you can, and they can live um, quite normally, and it just really slows down the trajectory of clinical sign onset. Will the dosage of the treatment need to change over the course of the horse's life? Very often. So um, this is also seen in Parkinson's disease where early on a low dose probably can regulate the clinical signs. And as the animal um, or person is progressing, there's more and more loss of those dopaminergic neurons, and you need to replace that dopamine with higher and higher doses of the dopamine agonist, the drug that replaces the dopamine. When effectively managed... Uh, and so forth, and, and these horses are, you know, living reasonably comfortable lives and, and kind of getting along pretty well, is it likely then that they will eventually succumb to some other disease, or will this be a contributing factor to the mortality? I'm not sure what percent we can attribute to a secondary problem due to the PPID. PPID itself isn't going to cause the horses... Um, uh, to pass, but the immunosuppression might, for example. Um, but most of the time is probably going to be some other thing that gets horses when they're old. And that typically is things like um, osteoarthritis. So the horses just become too uncomfortable because of joint pain over time. Or it could be a colic or some other things that horses are very prone to. i got about a minute and a half. If I'm talking to you in say, 10 years about this, where, where are we going to be in the state of uh, the diagnosis and treatment of this disease? So currently, we're working on trying to understand the genetics better um, in um, collaboration with a group at University of Minnesota. We have sent a whole bunch of samples up to them so that they can work through the different genetic markers. So it will be possible that we can identify high-risk animals. We would certainly like to know what things in their environment might be predisposing the animals and um, 
perhaps we will have better diagnostic tests. Um, we certainly have been working at that, albeit not particularly fast. Um, and I think that the treatment is a it's a it's a good treatment. So I'm not sure whether we will um, have a lot of progress in that area because we have a pretty good drug right now. Well, I mean that's encouraging, certainly. Yeah. Well, Dr. Diane McFarland from the UF College of Veterinary Medicine. Thank you so much for talking to me today. I really I really appreciate it. Thanks. It was great to have this conversation. Thank you, Dana. I want to thank Sarah Carey as well at the UF College of Veterinary Medicine for her help with the program. And to all of you for listening, thank you so much. You're listening to Animal Airwaves Live here on WUFTFM. I'm Dana Hill. I hope you'll join me next time for another episode. Mm-hmm.